please give her a warm round of applause. Amazing. How's that? Ooh, thank Good. you so much. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I also want to say how nice it is to be here at Skylight Books. As we all know, an independent bookshop is a beautiful thing. And I don't know how many people are this is their first time in Skylight Books, but I suspect some. And if this is if this is the, your, your first time, please come back, I would say. Yeah. And it's a real pleasure to be invited. Um, I'm thrilled to be here to discuss um, Katrina's marvelous, marvelous novel. I get to teach the Gothic novel. So I was just floored to be able to read a real Gothic novel written in the present. Um, I can't tell you how um, happy it made me. It's powerful. You'd have to ransack all 200 years of the Gothic history to find all the right adjectives, I think, to describe how awesome this book is. So I'm really excited. Um, so what we thought we might do is start a little conversation, uh, chat a little bit, um, and then perhaps uh, uh, Kat might do a little reading, and uh, we would have a Q&A at some point where all of you could ask your questions, which I think would be a nice format. All right, so um, there's so many things I want to talk about with this book, um, but in general, I thought it might be helpful to say a little bit about what the Gothic is, right? The Gothic is a genre that is about thinking about the sh influence of the past on the present. And the fact that the traumas of the past, uh, the legacy of things that have happened, the legacy of what people have done is something that is hard to escape. Um, and so with that in mind, I thought a well, first question I'd like to know, you know, it, Kat, is, you know, if you think about the place we're in today, I think right now, um, politically, internationally, we're in a place where people are really struggling to come to terms with things that have happened. There are people who want to return to the past, there are people who are terrified that the past is returning to the present. And I'm just kind of curious how you feel this novel, maybe your interest in the Gothic resonates right now. It's really, well, that's really interesting because I think that I, I did a creative writing master's at, while, as part of the process of writing this book. And the question that was asked of me all the time was, why is this relevant? Um, because I think the creative writing sort of, uh, the creative writing kind of industry or the creative writing, writing academic industry is very much a bastion, is a bastion of sort of uh, gritty modernism and people just didn't understand why I would like why I wanted to revisit this genre at all um, and there, I mean, there are lots of answers that you could that you could make like I said you know uh, there's a, it, it, it is about our connection to the past and about our responsibility to the past and you know and, and dealing with our heritage and our legacy but also to be completely honest and we touched on this earlier like I just I wanted to write a gothic novel, not because of the resonances of a gothic novel and not just because I wanted to sort of mine it as a misprision of, of a, or a reforming of the genre. I genuinely thought that this, in its, in its own right, it, as, as a form, is so uh, expressive and so capable and such, such a grand abstract architecture that it, that was the aim in itself, really. Well, I, I have to agree wholeheartedly. And I like that you brought up architecture because one of the things that really characterizes the Gothic, our, our Gothic spaces and, and what these castles and, and, and locations mean for the characters within them and the people who are in control, whether you're talking about um, Udolpho in one of the first Gothic novels or a film like Alien and the Nostromo and sort of what happens on that spaceship over the course of it. Um, so I thought one of the interesting things about Raw Blood is uh, the, the, the Raw Blood itself, the, the territory, the house in this novel. It's such a powerfully 
conceived, kind of gripping, dark, uh, but also loved, deeply loved and inspired space. And I think um, it's strange to me, I mean, I've read some other Gothic fiction, how much the characters really love, identify with, want to be part of this, this house and its place in their lives. And um, the fact that it, this novel is so deeply invested in this oscillation between travel and movement and, and existence out in the world and then return to home and sort of the significance of home um, as a place that unites this family in the past and the present in ways both good and, and frankly terrible, right? Um, so I was just curious, is there a place that's, that's a raw blood for you? I mean, is there something that's inspired that kind of deep affection? Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, it's... Um I, mean, I think I think the structure of the house in the Gothic is it's it's, it's always important anyway. But for me personally, I, I I chose this I chose this setting because, as a friend of mine says, you always set your first novel where your dreams are set, mm-hmm. which I certainly found to be true of of uh, of this and of me. Um, and I moved around a lot when I was young. My fa- our family moved from Madagascar to Kenya to Yemen to Morocco, and we came back every summer to house on Dartmoor, which was kind of my only constant, my only constant in in a in a very uh, itinerant life, and. It was, seemed very exotic to me. It was very exotic and very. Um, it just grabbed hold of my imagination immediately. Sort of the hills and the rivers and um, the big sky and the wild ponies and the bracken and you know all of that. It just it was so different to everything that I, that I, I I knew. And um, the the cottage itself was this sort of seventeenth century Devon longhouse, but it was built on this on the. Uh, foundations of a structure that's even older than that. Um, so, and there's there's been a structure in that place uh, since the Doomsday Book, which is sort of 11th century. So it's very very old, and it had like a fireplace that was big enough to to drive a cart through, and the walls were five or six feet thick. <laughs> And, you know, granite wall that's five or six feet thick, you're like, <laughs> it's, it's a very solid thing. And I used to wait, I woke up in that house. It was a very happy place for me, but it's strange because you don't actually question these sorts of things when you're younger. You accept them. You're very plastic. You accept them as part of, as pa- as part of your reality. But I would wake up almost every night with a hand in the small of my back pushing me out of bed. Um, and I would fall out of bed, and I'd go and sleep in my sister's room. And the main thing about I don't—I mean, I don't even to this day know what that means. I don't, I don't really want. To, I don't really need to know what that means. Its main merit for me was in giving access to a quality of fear which you don't have a cognate for in your everyday life. So you, you don't experience it elsewhere. It is pure amygdala um, and it doesn't have any rational cause or effect when I first read um, a ghost story which was I think the um, the monkey's paw by W.W. Jacobs um, which is absolutely terrifying um, if you haven't read it do or don't I mean whichever um, it's about uh, two parents who who will their dead son back to life, and the last the last sort of beat of the story is that is them hearing his dead, undead fist beating on the door, and them just sitting fearfully behind it, not knowing what they're going to find when they open the door to the whatever they've 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 willed into being. 
And when I read this, I just thought, oh, well, that, that's it. That's how you contain this experience. This is the, this is, this is the conduit for that feeling, for, for that fear. This is how we rationalise and conceptualise that. Um, so when I started to write, that was exactly the place that I started. Um, and, I, and it came, it, it, there was no other choice for it, really. Um, yeah. So I, mean, I, I wonder if you'd say a little more about that uncertainty. I mean, you, you were saying, you know, you don't want to characterize what that hand was, what it meant. You don't want to characterize whether or not it was real. Um, and, you know, you go back to the history of the Gothic, and Anne Radcliffe was sort of famous for explaining away the supernatural. She would sort of have ghosts, and, and all these hauntings would happen. And then somebody would come along and explain, oh, it was me behind the curtain doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, another novelist named Walter Scott criticized her really heavily. He said, I love the novels, but you've always got this explained supernatural. That you're taking away the one thing about this novel that's most gripping. Um, I'm just curious... You know, in this novel that seems to be really invested early on in this deep uncertainty about what is driving these events, whether or not they're real, how they're happening, um, how do you see that sort of uncertainty, that dynamic of skepticism playing out? Um, well, I, I think you have to have... Sorry, I'm having real trouble with this. Um, I think you have to have skepticism in order to create the uncanny. I think you have to have, um, you, you have, to have doubt in order for things mm. to be frightening. You can't live in a world that in which... Ghosts are definitely, definitely real because that's not frightening. Or you can't live in a world where they're definitely, definitely not real. That's not frightening. What's really frightening is the, is the is the maybe, the potential. It might or might not happen. And I mean, this is this is a, you know this is a very obvious dynamic that all all you know uncanny literature and and after that you know horror films work off is is what might happen, not what will or what won't. And if you were talking about it in terms of you know. In, in, in terms of the gothic, like, it needs, I think, again, we touched on this earlier, I think it needs, like, a healthy dose of Protestant scepticism in order to facilitate the uncanny. Because if you're in a Catholic system of belief, you have miracles. You have miracles, and uh, that, that is the, the, the supernatural happening in a natural form on Earth. And that, again, that just makes it part of the regular life, you know. Um, the regular life. Um, so... Another thing I was really curious about in, in reading this novel is the, way, the place of the modern, like the place of modern technology in it, because you know, the way the Gothic normally works, it's you use the modern and the modern technology to, to you know, get rid of the demon, to fight the monster, um, and if this anxiety of the Gothic is you're going to get dragged into this terrible past with all of its witches and magic and ghosts, the, the location of the present, the return to the present is this super stabilizing moment, and you think about like a, a novel like Dracula, for instance, you you know, the Lords of Light defeat Dracula because they have like guns and mimeograph typewriters and a telegraph, right? And they can use these modern technologies to fight the vampire. In this novel, it doesn't work that way at all. No, because you return <laughs> to the present, which is the First World War, which is the yeah. most destabilized, huge seismic event that uproots, you know, the early 20th century. So, yeah. Um, the modern, I mean, modernity is frightening as well, though, isn't it? I mean, the modernity has as well, you know, um, we... I was uh, talking about this earlier with someone, which is that, you know, if you look at medicine, every single advance in medicine has been made at, at great and hideous cost. Um, for for instance, in, in the novel, there are seen, you know, some, some scenes that people find upsetting, which are about animal experimentation. 
it's always seemed remarkable to me how willing we are to forget how uh, how much we, we benefit from and stand on the shoulders of these really quite gruesome and, and horrible things. Um, each each gain, each operation, each technology, each each drug has been has been gained at hideous and bloody cost. The, there's that um, at uh, I think it's. Oh, I can't remember who said it, but it was um, the science of life is a superb and dazzlingly lighted hall, which is reached through a long and ghastly kitchen. Mm-hmm. So I was really, I'm really interested in that because we do, we have a, we have a, we have a little mental sleight of hand of forgetting that um, that we perform. Every time we, you know, we benefit from, from something, or, or just, you know, that we embed it in our in our way of being, um, which is to forget it, to forget how how horrible at what cost we have we have gained our security, our safety, our advances, you know. Wow, yeah. I mean, that gives a really different way of reading um, a novel like Frankenstein, actually, because yeah. it's usually read as sort of a morality play to some degree. But I think I, I could definitely see it as about sort of the cost of of, pr- of progress. Um, um, I, so I think you know. Uh, uh, one last little question here. I'm, I'm just kind of curious. You know, you've got all. You've really only got maybe one true villain. I think in this novel, roughly. Um, you've got a lot of characters who do terrible. Wait, things. who do you think the villain is? <laughs> the doctor. <laughs> uh, do you think? Oh, well, okay, go on. Yeah, no, you're right. Not. He is. No, he is. He is. He's he not, is. Yeah, I don't know. He's not an object of sympathy. I no, you're right. He's the only one you don't get a window into either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and he's terrible. Yeah, he's terrible. Uh, um, anyway, but the rest of the characters they do terrible things, but they're deeply, deeply sympathetic, um, engaged objects of sort of affection as well as yeah. sympathy. So I'm just kind of curious which of these characters you sort of sympathize with the well, most. I, yeah. I, f- I find that the nastier or the more the, the more flawed and the more mistakes they make, the more I do sympathize with them. So all of them, I would say. I mean, they. I like. I like I like the fact that they make they make a, 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 repeatedly the same mistake, even, and it's a mistake that they've been told not to make over and over again. Just um, for those who haven't read it or started it, you know, the premise the premise of Raw Blood is, or the girl from Raw Blood is that uh, there is a ghost that haunts a family uh, through the generations in a, in the, their ancestral home at the eponymous Raw Blood, and they are taken by her and killed. They die of fear at seeing her, but she comes to them if they marry or if they have children. So it's a very inefficient parasite, really. It just <laughs> dwindles. The family dwindles and dwindles until um, the, the, the novel opens in 1910 with just two people left, which is a father and a do- his daughter Iris, who's our protagonist. Um, and sorry, I forgot your question. Oh, sympathy. Oh, sympathy. Yeah, concern. <laughs> well, I think that what what seemed remar- remarkable as a writer to discover is that every time I created a character, they kept on making this, the exact same transgression that they'd been told not to make. So they were told that if you fall in love, or if you have children, or if you get married, or if you in any way basically um, make a gesture towards the continuation of life. You will die, and they all do it. Like every single one, they just they they um, they either uh, they either sort of try, uh, push the not their knowledge of the prohibition down, or they blatantly flout it, or they forget about it, or they you know they eat, but each one of them has this strong an engine inside them, which is you know to to love really to love and 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 to 
participate in this sort of great stream of life. So, and I'm often surprised when people say that this is a very depressing or a sad or a or a, or a um, you know a, a kind of pessimistic book because I, I don't think it is. I think if anything, it's it's incredibly optimistic about about human nature. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, just we've got that tight. We've got the will inside us, the will that makes the seed want to grow into an oak. You know, we just we just keep on fighting. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think love is really at, at the center of the book, and it's really powerful. I mean, it's. Yeah, it drives all these characters in this irresistible and optimistic way. And that's, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad that came through. Um, well, maybe, I mean, rather than be, you know, me asking questions, you, you might want to take a second and share some of the wonderful prose. Yeah. Okay, you get to choose. So, all right, so you can have, you can have, all right, you can have um, first, first love, first meeting, first love, or you can have uh, a ghost in a cave, or you can have first love, but over an autopsy. <laughs> Good choices. All right, so um, for, uh, first love, which is um, at the very beginning of the book, which is meeting on the moors. Hands up. Not so many. Okay. Uh, ghost in a cave. A few more. Love over the autopsy table. Everyone, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Every time. Every time. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> All right. I first laid eyes on Alonso the day we laid knives to our cadavers. Mary has played a curious trick in the intervening 20 years, for I recall it as if it were a tintype. The image is inert and dull-colored, perhaps because the memory lives in my intellect and understanding rather than in my eyes. There was no horror in that room. I was put in mind of York Minster, which I have seen once, and the cool effigies that lie there in the sanctified air. The corpses were washed and bound in cheesecloth. There was little in the waxy figures before us to revolt. They lay like brides, each on their bier, the white forms barred by a little sunlight that strayed through the echoing windows of the hall. We set to work with stentorian tones of the lecturer in our ears. We began on a leg. The shape, the roundness of the calf, the muscles preserved so tight and solid beneath the waxy skin. There is a peculiar pleasure to it. The knife went in. The dermis and layers of muscle were revealed like a flower, petal by petal. There were such colours and shapes I had not known. The muscle is a rich purpled red encased in marbled flesh the colour of a baked salmon. The sinews and tendons are white with a yellowish tinge. The component parts lie tight together in symmetry as if designed by a master craftsman bound and run through by the lacework of corded vessels. The graceful long saphenous vein from which other veins branch like winter trees against the sky. The rippling surface of the gastrocnemius muscle. I was bemused by the vomiting and the distress that was engendered in my fellows. Unclothed, these forms retained their modesty. They were not awesome, but simply the carcasses of man sloughed away when need was, for them was done. The corpses were strongly preserved in formaldehyde. Their flesh bore little relation to that of a living being. There could be no kinship to oneself. I could not think, there but for grace go I, or one day I shall lie thus. Perhaps I should have thought these things. Perhaps I was too sure and young to truly understand the condition of these cold figures, which submitted to the outrage of our knives. 
Afterwards, we sought the lamb and flag like hounds. Those of our party were seized by hilarity commensurate to their previous unease. These young men shed their fear and talked loudly and bravely. Beer went down and so did gin. Faces grew rosier, lips wetter, eyes brighter. Their memories of the blood and the bones and the delicate layers of subcutaneous flesh were transmuted, and the company waxed lewd. There was an odour of halibut and sorrow. As the sun fell, the light grew orange and straightened its beams through the casements. One man alone, I observed, who sat quiet and played with a penny on the rim of his glass, producing a tuneful sound, never loud enough to attract notice, but so that the gathering became accustomed to the gentle noise running beneath the babble. I thought he had arrived with the others only that minute, and then I thought I had seen him in the hall that morning. This man was sallow and vast. His hair stood up at the back of his neck like the ruff of a bird. His linen was ragged at the, at the collars and stained with ink, which also covered his hands like blemishes. He hunched in the settled chair like a crouching beast. He was fixed on his task, which he performed with movements that were precise and small. The great fingers manipulated the penny with a dexterity that confounded the eye that ran supple and light around the dirty rim. An image, a memory perhaps, arose unbidden to the surface of my mind, of him holding a knife, face solemn in the dim air. I shook my head to clear it of the heavy punch fumes and moved closer under the cover of the shrieks. One bright spark had donned the tavern madam's bonnet and was discoursing in a theatrical voice on her pullets and spiced wares for sale, and this was enough distraction for the company who rocked with laughter. As I moved my stool, I was clumsy and I made a business of it. The wooden legs screeched on the flags. The penny man lifted his eye to mine. It was that of a blackbird, bright and deep like a glimpse of the bottom of a well. His finger sent the coin singing once more around the rim. They hear it, he said, but they do not mark it. It is a constant. They have accustomed themselves. But if I increase the pitch so, he poured more ale into the glass and it sang out higher, and so on, eventually the glass will shatter. That, they will note. There will be a great fussing with cloths and restitution and a new glass, as if it were a surprise. But the warning has been sounding... He made the glass sing again, all along. Do you understand? I do not, I confess. I was held by the lights that moved in his eyes. It is so that death sits beside us every day, until it is forced upon our notice. Until the vessel breaks open and life flows out, we must be blind and deaf to its presence, or we could not conduct our carnival as we do. He gestured at the youth who entertained the company. That individual was now bright red, the bonnet lay askew over one eye, and he had begun a series of high kicks, as the, as the Parisian dancing girls do. The penny man regarded this with kindness, but absently, as if it were an effort by a child to imagine a giraffe when they have not seen one. He went on, but there are some who choose to listen to, that, to the song of mortality, which underlies it, lies beneath everything, the long note beneath the cacophony. For those who can hear death whistling always underneath, who do not fear him, but see his part in the music. He grasped my arm as if in sympathy. For them it is a vocation of the loneliest and the highest order. We looked on one another. The finger turned and the glass whistled its distress. The pitch soared and enclosed us in its sphere. It will break, I said. Ah, uh, not it, he said. Not yet. I offered him my hand then. I told him my name. Uh, it's a great reading. I mean, it gives a wonderful sense, I think, of just how sensuous um, the, the prose is. Really evocative um, and powerful. Um, I don't think I've ever wanted to be dissecting something so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I'm curious. I mean, hearing it 
how much do you see the sort of, or, or are you thinking of the, the sort of building pitch as a sort of a thinking about the structure of, of the Gothic and, and sort of the tension? Because it really feels like this novel consistently sort of gins up anxiety and sort of stress and power and things sort of come together until finally everything does really break. Um, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a, it's a stressful it's a stressful book. Um, <laughs> it was a stressful book to write as well. Like um, it because it it is uh, I, I because for me uh, having I, I think I I didn't that's not entirely true. I was going to say I didn't even mean to write a gothic novel. Of course I did, but it was it seemed such a natural choice to me to write a gothic novel because the concerns of it are so internalized. Um, it's the kind of writing that I love and. Um, I mean, for each for each section, because of, of each um, voice is written very idiomatically in 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 the in the sort of language of its time. So for each one, I had almost like a little internal style guide, like a little note. And for the Charles Danforth section, which is what I just read from, the 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 pattern was Dracula, mm. because that diary format, that formality, that stiffness, you know. Um, and then in the Italian section, it was Austin. And mm. in, um, you know... That's it, so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's why it's so funny. Like, yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but finding the, uh, finding the tensions in... In, in each of those was actually that was what that was kind of the, the good surprise you know you get you get a good you get good surprises and bad surprises when you're writing and that was one of the good ones I was like oh this 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 does work because I am using this sort of this grand over overarching architecture which is the word we word we've used um, to frame concerns which are universal so when you're talking about when you're talking about the gothic i think actually sometimes all you're talking about really is how we respond to structures of power mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes we're talking all we're talking about is um women the women's place in uh you know a system you know a society with systemic systemic kind of oppression of them you know, and all of these things are I mean, I don't. I don't think anyone could hold up their hand and say well, these are problems we've eradicated from our society today. This is. It always. I always find. I find myself very defensive of this kind of, um, and kind of wanting to stand up and champion this. Um, this. So, this, I was put it in quotation marks, this so-called genre fiction, because I think people, which is kind of a catch-all that people use um, when they want to talk about stuff that they don't think is very good. Um, <laughs> and I think it is very good. I think that um, the, to, talk about, um, to talk about life and death and, um, and great um, sweeping concerns in this very kind of Oper- almost operatic fashion is is so is so important. It's a it's a shorthand, abstract way of discussing and uh, and putting it through a, putting these concerns through a lens, which shows them in a new light. To quote you know that wonderful Emily Dickinson quote that everyone uses on creative writing courses, which is like tell the truth but tell it at a slant. Mm-hmm. The gothic slant is is one that I think we have a great need of we you know it it portrays it's seen as quite hammy because it portrays a world full of darkness and horror and oppression and maybe it's a little bit hard for us to acknowledge that that might be kind of how the world is um at least sometimes you know i couldn't agree more um well maybe it'd be nice to see what kind of questions you all have for katriana does anybody want to ask something 
Come on. Genre. Yeah. Um, which one specifically? Which authors inspired you or fed into the story? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think that the period, you know, the period writers that sort of directly jump off from this I mean, so bonkers. Um, it's almost unreadable. I'm not suggesting you read it. <laughs> it really, it really impressed me because it's not satisfied with having a frame narrative within a frame ma- narrative within a frame narrative within a frame narrative. No, no, no. It needs to go at least six steps beyond that. It starts out in 19th century Ireland with a haunted picture, and it ends up on a Pacific island. Um, <laughs> With 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 a ghost throwing itself into the sea, and and then eventually you end up back in nineteenth century Ireland, but only after something like four thousand pages. But what I what I what I loved and what I took from that from that novel is is the sort of w- w- the reason it, it jumps so much thematically and in and in geography is because it has a real love for its um for its precursors so it it loves sort of like its precursors in in gothic fiction it loves the mysteries of adolfo it loves you know the monk it it has a real love affair with its with with it, with, with with literature and it's trying to cram it all in at once and that's a sort of hallmark of the gothic is is kind of containing itself um, not only in terms of plot, like you don't just have a buried, a buried body, but you have all of its all of its kind of um, all of its sort of like memories of canon buried in the text as well. So I love that. I mean, in terms of like, I I I love um, I love ghost stories. I love um, particularly like I don't know if you know Kelly Link, who is a fantastic short story writer. She was nominated for the Pulitzer last year, and um, her stories are. I mean, I th- I think that sort of uber gothic in the sense that they they rend- they render the world in an almost unrecognizable f- form um so i think she was really important and um yeah but like i know like uh, beloved yeah yeah oh i love beloved yeah. yeah and also the way that the way that that novel interacts with the land as well like it's written it's ri- it, it is written in into the land and in you know the, as um as the land is written into the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Some other questions? Um, I like the way you use animals. Mm-hmm. Animals. <laughs> A lot of people don't like the way the animals <laughs> get treated in this, in, in this book. Used. Putting that aside, you have lovely um, animals in that. Yeah. Well... The animals. I'm so sorry. Hold on. Let me get this. Um, the animals become like the animals. Often, I think actually, Iris Murdoch does this a lot, where the animals become a sort of surrogate for um, for the human character's feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about if you if you if you know you you use you use the animals as sort of to create a sort of like pathetic fallacy. But also, you're talking about a time. You're talking about a time and talking about a place where animals are. You know, very animals are a big part of life, and um, maybe you know, which they're certainly not, you know, not not in my life, in my modern life, in the same way. But um, 
And actually, it was one of those things that I had to be really careful about because I, you know, I found my own love of 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 Dartmoor and my own love of like horses coming into it. I was like, I just you can't you can't let your own sort of preferences kind of contaminate it too much. Um, I always have at the front of my mind when I'm writing things like that, um, the Iris Murdoch quote of, bad writing is filled with the fumes of personality. Hmm. Because it is. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't, you know, if, if someone loves their horse, it can't be because I once loved my horse. <laughs> Although I did. You know, it can't be because of that. It has to be the character, you know, it has to, it has to come from a more, a more sort of like elevated kind of independent place. Yeah. You know, I, you know, people talk about the pathetic fallacy is, is, is a fallacy, right? But, and I guess it is if you're talking about like a thunderstorm. Yeah. Thunderstorms don't have feelings. But I feel like there's a way in this novel that the emotional investment in the animals becomes a way to sort of open up insight into their nature. Like the difference between how a horse feels and a rabbit feels, I think. Not, they don't feel the same way. They don't, and also I think it's all, you know, there, there is certainly, it's a great concern in the book about you know our responsibility of how we treat how we treat the world around us and how we how we how we treat the natural world and how we treat others and particularly how we treat those who are powerless in our in our care and that that certainly certainly includes um, the animals and some people are very very culpable. <laughs> <laughs> we all are a little bit. Um, was there a question? Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious. I mean, the idea of writing a novel is so overwhelming to me, and I, I'm just so interested in where it all starts. When you're talking, it sounds like it almost revealed itself to you when you were writing a gothic, um, you know, uh, it, a genre book. Was it like a character? Was it the place? Was it an image? Was it like where was the sort of scene for you of this? Well, I started with the 19th century section. So I wrote, essentially, I wrote a self-contained 19th century ghost story first. And then I realized that actually I wasn't quite finished with it because I wanted, I, I wanted it to I wanted to use the the ghost in different ways. So I did another one, and I did another one, and I did another one. And six years later, I had a novel. Um, I mean, I... It, it, it's it's tough. Like if I, I I don't think I would have written it if I'd known how long it was going to take. I genuinely don't. I think I would have probably gone and had a sandwich or something. Like it's it's hard. And it, it, most most of what you write every day doesn't make it in. So you sit there and you write and you write and you write. And there's something particularly self defeating about a day when you're just you know you've done I don't know two thousand words. And you just think well almost maybe three of those words will actually make it into the finished version of of what it ends up being it's a constant exercise in not just revision but almost like distilla- distillation to, to, to such a degree that that you have to produce the, the volume you have to produce is almost ridiculous compared to you know what you end up with um i think that you can waste i i certainly did it was my first novel i was how i was i taught myself to write while writing this novel and that is obviously mostly to the novel's detriment because <laughs> i made all my mistakes in it and when you go wrong, you can go wrong for ye- for years, years, and and not really know you're going wrong, um, and th- and and so it 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 all, it all takes time. I um, you uh, yeah, and and then actually, I think most of it was written in in rewriting, really. So I you know I finally at the end of the six years, had this huge, well, about five and a half years, had this huge book that I just didn't know what to do with. And I, but I, I had, I 
very very luckily found myself a very nice agent who just went well this is not you know it's not gonna work and I was like really no <laughs> six years no uh, and <laughs> and um and he and he just says like three he, he didn't say that much he said like three things he said one you know why don't you do this and this and this um and I did I was like oh I see and in three months I think it completely transformed and that's and you know you do get this most of it it's just hideous. I mean, hideous. You sit there, nothing happens. It's terrible when it does. And you're bad and you, you just feel, you just, you know, feel terrible about yourself. And, and uh, to be honest, everyone else in the world too. You're just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm no good, but nor any of you. So, and then you have this glorious golden moment um, where it all comes together. It comes together and you suddenly realise what it's about and what it's meant to be and, what, and, and you, 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 you form it into... Into, into its final incarnation and you just think well wh- why on earth couldn't I have done that earlier but you can't it's part of the process you have to slog your way through so much sorry that's a long answer to your question it's only beautiful and what was there anything from all those you know from through the five and a half years in the final book now like is something that stayed yeah like yeah absolutely I mean the the description in fact uh, almost everything from that first ghost, original ghost story is still in here. Um, but there was a lot of other stuff that went in. There are, I think I must have written about seven novels while writing this novel. And I think that's a low, a low word yeah. count, actually. So I, yeah, there, there were, I mean, there was all sorts of weird ideas. I don't even want to tell you. It's so embarrassing. But... <laughs> Astronauts? <laughs> I mean, almost aliens. <laughs> no, it's so funny. Actually, um, Ed, my boyfriend, who's just here, made me laugh so much because we were talking about the end of the book, and my editor wanted a different ending. Which, actually, in retrospect, I kind of agree with her. But at the time, I was like, no! No, it's, it's, it's the ending torn from my soul. I must have it. And um, she suggested some other endings, and Ed was sort of looking through them, and he just went, this one... This one is the actual ending of Back to the Future. (laughs) (laughs) And it was. (laughs) So editors aren't always right either. (laughs) It was exactly the ending. I mean, I could have gone that way, but I didn't. <laughs> oh, well. Um, uh, I just, can I put my teacher hat on for just one second? Mm. About this word genre. Because I, I, I agree, I hate the way that people yeah. use genres as a pejorative. It's ridiculous. And I just want to say one thing for everybody to remember. I think genres, especially strong genres like the Gothic, are always designed to address some current problem and propose solutions. That problem might look different. It might be a different problem if you lo- relocate that genre in a different time. But that is what they're built for, and they're very, very good at it. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> other questions? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm doing... Well, I've done ghosts. Now I'm doing murder. So, sticking with the classics. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I... I, I love this, but I don't think I can I don't think I can do any more of this. I just I think I'm going to put it down for a bit. Also, all the characters in this novel, most of them started out dead, so it's very <laughs> difficult to to think of any sort of sequels. Um, <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, so my next novel is um, I think we settled on the title Little Eve, and it is a murder mystery, sort of a murder mystery. It is a um, it's a, a sort of a whodunit about 
the question being whether or not this very troubled young woman murdered her entire family on New Year's Eve in a storm on a Scottish island in a nature-worshipping cult in 19, on New Year's Eve 1928. Did she or didn't she? You decide. No, I decide. You work it out. Um, and I'm, st- I'm actually, I'm still, this is the, w- the weird thing about it is you'd like, I'm still writing it. I'm still in the last bits of writing it. So everything I've just said to you could change. Well, not everything, but some, a lot of, a lot of it could. Um, it's, it's all, it's all very fluid and very exciting, but I like, I like murder. I tried to write a really diagrammatic murder mystery, like a really classic one. I just couldn't do it. It's too, dun, 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 dun. um, but I found ways, ways into it that really, you know, but that use the, the genre, which I really enjoy. And there's something really, I think there's something really comforting about, and the reason why, perhaps this is the reason I'm drawn to both these genres, um, is that actually, while they are ostensibly quite macabre, they're actually quite reassuring. What does a murder mystery give you except the the reassurance that the perpetrator will be caught and identified and be b- brought to account it gives you a sense that that problems are soluble that um that that every every crime has a culprit and that that culprit can be can be uncovered and and punished in and in the same way that ghost stories actually what they're actually giving you is is a comforting affirmation that our our you know our we have an afterlife and that we can even from beyond the grave right our wrongs and and send a message and tell our loved ones what we need to tell them so so i've always found it interesting that the two these two supposedly most violent most um kind of unfriendly and 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 frightening genres actually for me seem actually rather optimistic rather hopeful um and you know, yeah, they they hide, they hide, they hide like a, a a light amongst all of all of the all of the dark kind of all the dark deeds. So that's great, and it brings up another really good point. You know, no work actually sits exclusively in just one genre; they're always hybrid at some level. And if you like mysteries, I mean, this this really is driven by a deep fundamental question, a deep mystery, and that doesn't get resolved until the very close, and it's quite shocking when it does. Um, but as opposed to a detective fiction, um, I think you would want to reread it and reread it, because um, it doesn't give anything away. It actually really enriches the book. Buy a copy each time you yes. read it. Edition two out next year. Um, <laughs> any other questions? Yes? Both. Um, it was uh, the question was uh, is little, writing to leave more difficult or easier than writing raw blood? And the answer is both. And once in one sense, it's much much easier um, because I'm a little bit a little bit. Sometimes I think I'm worse, but usually I think I'm a little bit better than I was at writing. But on the other hand, with with, with this, if I got fed up with it and I stopped believing in myself and I, I just hit a wall, I could put it in a drawer and forget about it for six months at a time, and no one would know the difference and it was that's that's a very reassuring place to be but it also makes you procrastinate like nothing on earth like you just don't have you're not accountable to anyone whereas with with this one i i I know how much time i have had which is two and a half years uh well no two years and um you know that's it someone's waiting for it someone's 
given you money for it. You you have got to get it in. And there's something really quite compelling about that. Um, <laughs> but but so r- being forced to write has made. Um, has has made me discover ways of writing, I think, which I didn't know I was capable of. I am, you know, I am also concerned, though, that's, that you don't get those kind of, like, lovely moments where you get you get to have the narrative kind of discover itself you have to you have to force it to you have to discover an answer for it you can't just wait for the answer to visit you in the middle of the night or go dance in a stone circle and wait for it to come you know you don't you don't get to do that you have to you have to be like well you know there's that um who was uh da, 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 who was it who said i think it was susan hill who said like uh, someone asked her like how do you how do you uh where do you get you know where do you get your inspiration and she's just like well i just make sh- i get up at 9am every morning and i make sure i'm inspired you know <laughs> that's 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 what you got to do um and that, there is a lot of merit to both there's a lot of you know dis- there's a lot of power to both ways of working and I, they both have their advantages and disadvantages i think li- you know little eve is going to be a shorter more compact probably more conventional book this is as we were saying this is this is this is a gothic novel it's not really something that people actually just tend to write in the 21st century um whereas uh little eve is a kind of like as a twisty mystery murdery sort of like fun lots of you know nasty nature cult kind of you know isolation and lots of like nasty deeds you know it's it's a little bit more it's a little bit more um it's cleaner i think um yeah Maybe this is the beginning of the new wave of, of gothic fiction. That'd be really wonderful. Yeah. Um, how did you guys settle on two years? You went, you went to them and you said, "Well, this took six. and they said, "Okay, you've got two. I mean, <laughs> they said you got one. Actually, <laughs> I was like, I can't do it in one. So, um, I mean, if if I went back to them and I said, "I just can't do it," um, they try and get. I think it's it's if you're a first time novelist, I think they try and get you, they try and get something out fairly soon afterwards in order to capitalise on mm. the enormous amount of publicity and fame I've garnered. World tour. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they try they try and they try and get something out quickly uh, in order in in order that you can sort of like capitalise on whatever on, on whatever kind of you know goodwill you've generated with the first one, um, and also probably because they just don't want to be working with you forever on your second book like they get they, they only get paid once you know um but and i think it benefits everyone to have it happen quite quickly but if i i'm you know i'm i love my publishers and i'm pretty sure if i went to them and i said i just can't do it i'm sure they'd find a way to make it work but you know i i'm ready too i want to you know i, I, I want to i want i want to send it out into the world and i want to you know to to, to move on to the next thing as well so it's you know it's, everyone's everyone, everyone's impetus really well um well Lily come out in the US at the same time as the UK? We haven't done a US deal yet because it's not written yet. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully 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 we will. Um, yeah. yeah. Great. Um, I think we've got time for maybe one more question. Yes. Uh, two questions. Um, two more questions. One A and B. Was there the choice of two uh, female characters like very conscious choice for the real books and very good question. I suppose actually a lot of the a, a, quite a few of the narrators in this are male but yes the protagonists are, the, both the protagonists are female I think I think that I think the two books are actually kind of 
they sort of inhabit the same universe, if you will, and they've got a, they've got a similar set of concerns because I I had I thought of the uh, the plot of Little Eve when I when I first got the publishing deal for this one. So this is like three years ago. So I had to give them a synopsis and tell them what I was going to write three years before I was actually writing it, um, which was. You know, it's it's a challenge because you you you're not quite sure what you're going to. You just have to. You have, like Susan Hill getting up in the morning. You just got to make sure you're inspired by it when you sit when you sit down to it. Um, I think that they they have similar kind of shared concerns, which are gothic in their nature, which are sort of like which are about you know uh, imbalances of power and and about women. And also, I liked. I also like really my favorite thing is to put my characters in the most challenging frightening and terrifying positions possible so and and one really good way of doing that is to make them female and young because that that lends you an immediate imbalance of power especially if you set it in the past it just means you add in, you know two more two more huge you know um challenges for them to face um so i think that's partly the motivation behind it but um and i think yeah, I do, I, it was. It, I think. I think that. Uh, yeah, I think that was kind of the behind the choice. As for adaptation, we did. Yeah, well, the rights are available. Um, <laughs> um, we had some sort of. You know, we had we had a few kind of uh, options on it in the past um, on Raw Blood. That is, and um, but you know, these things take time. Uh, and uh, I think actually, the trouble with this is it would be just always. It would be so expensive to make because mm. it's like it's like quite a lot of different, quite a lot of different huge set pieces. Um, the next one I think would be in more. Con- it's more contained. It's more of a chamber piece. So maybe that would be easier. But you can't. You know. Although that that is a hugely helpful thing for an author to, to have. You just you can't really think about it when you're writing because mm-hmm. it's just sort of the death knell. Really, it make, it, it just sort of freezes you and make, gives you all the wrong priorities. Mm-hmm. You know. Good answer. All right. Well, um, I think this is a wonderful conversation. And could we all give a round of applause for Catriona? Our wonderful novel. Thank you so much for coming. Should we have another round of applause for Devin for moderating so brilliantly? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.